From the hidden secrets of our backyards to the realities of the third world, we take a raw and real look into the challenges and the pursuits of social justice. Welcome to The Point. The Point Podcast is brought to you by ThePoint.life, offering healthcare, entrepreneurship, and education both domestically and internationally. Visit ThePoint.life to find out how you can get involved. I first set foot on the Caribbean island of Haiti, which is literally just an hour and a half from Florida, about a year after the unfortunate 2010 earthquake. That earthquake, a lot of people uh, reference when I tell them that I lived in Haiti. Um, A lot of times they unwillingly call it a hurricane, although Haiti has many of those as well, or even, you know, reference it as in like how are they doing you know since the earthquake and it's kind of crazy to think about that that was 12 years ago what an interesting time it was to move to that country what an interesting time it was in the world I always joke about how iPhones were literally just becoming a thing at that time people don't necessarily believe me because it feels like iPhones have been you know in our life for forever we forget that they didn't exist so i remember for years actually when i moved there i had one of those amazing nokia like unbreakable phones i was t9ing everybody oh my gosh how incredibly frustrating to try to have a conversation over t9 of course people had iphones both in america and in haiti and the world beyond but like i would say maybe 20 percent of people had iphones so again it's just interesting to think about like Uber didn't exist. Airbnb didn't exist. I remember coming back to the States and every time I would come back to visit within like that 10 year period, there was a different way to pay. Right. So like you would have like, I remember like fingerprint pay. Is that still a thing? Top to pay. Venmo. Putting your credit card like in as a chip, like everything changed so much. Um, And all those may feel a bit humorous. It's interesting to think about how the world of foreign aid, of social justice, of the Black Lives Matter movement, George Floyd, like coronavirus, all of these things happened during this time as well. And so it really began to shift the conversation within the social justice world, within the nonprofit world, within the missionary world, when Helping Hurts came out, Poverty Inc. came out, and we began to have these discussions and take a look at what we've been doing for so long and stop to say like, wait, maybe this isn't the right way. Like new vocabulary came out. And so that's really what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about what's new in this world of social justice, what's changed, what have we learned from the past? And I think one of the best ways to do that is to bring vocabulary to the conversation. So as I mentioned, I had moved to Haiti in 2010 for what I thought would be six months. I was going from California, I was going to live in Haiti, save the world, you know, in six months, of course, and then moved to New York City. That was my plan in my head. But after, you know, maybe two or three months there, I realized like I was going to be there for quite some time and ended up being there for about eight years, living in Port-au-Prince the majority of the time. And so when I think about who I was at that time when I moved down and, you know, this bright eyed, bushy tail, like a lot of us were almost naive. And I think in some sense, our naivety, is that a word, saved us because we... (laughs) 
if we knew the hardships that we were going to experience, if we knew the heartache, uh, just the internal wrestling with ourselves, with God, with our faith, with our beliefs, if we knew that all of those things were going to happen, would we really have chosen to take those steps and to dive into this messy work of the nonprofit world? So in some ways, I think the state of naiveness can protect us. But that's not an excuse not to learn. And so as I began my journey back, thinking about re-entering into the United States, I had a degree in graphic design. That's what I moved there for. But of course, I you know became very turned on to this idea of social entrepreneurship and you know helping to run businesses and consulting for other people who were moving from this world of relief to development work. I had this on the ground experience, but I didn't have the academic degree, you know, behind it. And so I put myself back in school and got a degree in community advocacy and social policy through the School of Social Work at Arizona State. At the time, it was one of the only accredited social work schools online, of course, since coronavirus, I'm sure things have changed. But it became very therapeutic for me. I was able to put words to what I was experiencing. I was able to put words to what I saw others around me experiencing. And I began to have a piece of context that kind of allowed me to have a foundation to why things were the way they were in an unjust world. So we want to start off with some foundational vocabulary that we throw around a lot in this sphere of social services. One of those is just the idea of social justice. Edith Abbott has a great quote and it goes like this. The social good worker doesn't go on mechanically helping people out of a ditch. Pretty soon she begins to find out what ought to be done to get rid of the ditch. So along those same lines, it's about social justice, like this equal distribution of wealth, opportunities, and privilege in society. In the social work world, we believe that the goal of our work is to help clients overcome conflicts that are barriers to self-fulfillment. So that means if people are not able to become at like, you know, the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which we can talk about in a minute, if they are not able to reach that, you know, pinnacle of self-fulfillment, what are the things that are preventing them from getting there? Another word we're using a lot is the idea of empowerment. It's this idea that when clients are empowered, they have control or power over their environment, which makes it possible for them to improve their lives. So the goal of empowerment is to increase the abilities of individuals, families, and communities to get what they need, which is influence over others, how to act, think, believe, and influence over how resources are distributed. I know there is some talk in this field as well about like the ethics around even using the word empowerment, because it can imply that maybe, you know, say, you know, Sarah is helping Liz. And so Sarah is empowering Liz. But by using that word empowerment, we're saying that Sarah actually has power over Liz in a sense where she may have something that she is holding above her that is not approaching Liz with a sense of equality. So that's just something to think about as we think about when we use the word empowerment. So I think, you know, 
the idea is that we're not necessarily, you know, giving handouts or, you know, reaching a hand down to help somebody up, but maybe that we're walking alongside of them in this whatever area that they need to remove to bring self-fulfillment. So along these same lines, I think it's important to identify even what the words like poverty means. This is especially interesting because in North American culture or, you know, in, I guess, the middle class white American culture, we can think of poverty as literally not having material possessions, maybe a lack of income, lack of health care, lack of food, etc. But these are more symptoms than the cause. So how we define poverty, this is important because it impacts the way that we're approaching, quote unquote, fixing it. So if you ask people who are living in poverty around the world, how they describe poverty, it's more in social terms. And I think that's important to know. So it comes across as feeling less than, feeling left out, hopeless, which is a powerful word, unworthy. So it's important that we see poverty as it impacts the overall well-being of humans and not just the material side. A really great book that helps to define this is The Voices of the Poor, which is actually a collection of three books in the series and it together brings about the experiences of over 60,000 men, women, and children living in poverty. And it was really done as a piece to educate the World Bank about its practices and how they were actually being received by the people who were on the receiving end of the projects from the World Bank. So very interesting. Definitely recommend looking into that. Again, it's called Voices of the Poor. So we just mentioned Maslow's hierarchy and needs. So Abraham Maslow was a fascinating man. He is the founder of humanistic psychology, uh, which birthed many of the ideas and practices that we have in our culture today. And he was known as being an enthusiast and an optimist. And he really wanted to understand what made people tick and how he could use that knowledge to make the world a better place. And so Towards the end of his life, he had a near fatal heart attack and he really began to reprioritize, you know, the things that he had in his life. And around that time, he had a granddaughter who was born and he's just so in love with this this little baby and realizing that there's this piece of who we are when we are born that exists at this top of the pyramid at the top of self-fulfillment and that we were at one time just in love with life. We were just exactly who we were created to be. And through the different experiences and traumas and triggers and hardships of our life, like those things can halt us to some extent. And so throughout our life, as we grow, we have this deep sense to get back to that place. He came up with these five stages of human needs that motivate our behavior. So visualize a pyramid. And so at the bottom of the pyramid is the physiological needs. So we have the eating, we have sleeping, drinking, basic elements to physically make our body function. After that is safety. So I find that especially interesting. I feel like we 
kind of like jump over that a lot, the kind of next stage. But I think this is actually where a lot of people get stuck. So we're talking about psychological and physical safety. So imagine if you're growing up in a neighborhood that has gang violence and you're going to bed every night hearing gunshots as a child, how are you supposed to feel secure? Like, where's your security in that? Or maybe you're in a broken home. Where is the sense of emotional security in that. And so I think a lot of people can end up getting stuck at that point. Kind of piggybacking alongside of that, you start to move into psychological needs. So we have the need for belonging and love for intimate relationships and friends. And then we move into esteem needs. So with this desire to feel prestigious, to feel like we have accomplishment. And then at the top of the pyramid, now where the triangle tip is, we have self-actualization, self-fulfillment. And that's really what we were talking about as well, which is the ability to achieve the full potential, including creative activities. And so when we talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, People can kind of, you know, depending upon stages of life and circumstances, we can go up and down. For example, I just had a baby and the bottom of the pyramid means that I am not getting a lot of sleep. It's hard to even think about anything when you're hungry, when you're thirsty, when you're not getting enough sleep. So as humans, it's not necessary that we get to the top and we have this like self-actualization. Again, there are outside circumstances that can bring us up and down throughout the pyramid. But when we're talking about social services, our desire or our goal should be to, you know, think about that pyramid, help the people that we're walking alongside, remove what is those barriers that are keeping them from being able to climb the pyramid and reach the pinnacle of self-actualization and self-fulfillment. So something I think that's important that we continue to bring into this conversation is the idea of kind of the us versus them, you know, the the caregiver and the client, almost this division of the person giving services and the person receiving services. But I think if you've worked in this field for any amount of time, or really, I mean, if you work at a bank, if you work at a coffee shop, et cetera, anytime you're dealing with any type of relationship, it's important that we are looking internally at ourselves as well and figuring out, are we healthy? And if we're not, what can we do to become healthy in this field of the nonprofit world, there's that cliche saying of, you know, put on your own oxygen mask first before you can help somebody else with their oxygen. But it's really, really true. And I think sometimes we enter this field with these high hopes and almost this egotistic outlook of we are healed and whole and we have something to give. But as we get into the messiness of other people's lives, we can end up taking that on ourselves or it could trigger some things from our past that we're not quite healed from. And so something that is coming into conversation, you know, over the last few years as well, is this idea of compassion fatigue or stress. And really it's this combination of burnout and secondary trauma. And that's what can equal compassion fatigue. What is compassion fatigue? Well, it's this natural and pathological outcome of prolonged exposure of helping professionals in stressful situations. So if 
you are dealing with people who are in trauma, we can end up experiencing secondhand trauma, which can cause self-deprecation. And we can sometimes, (laughs) many times, myself included, use it as an excuse for poor behavior. So for example, you know, a nurse might say, I'm in such a bad mood because I was up all night taking care of a patient. You know, or maybe we heard a really difficult story of somebody's childhood and that we can internalize that and we can come home and take it out on our spouse or our kids or our dog. So some of these symptoms that we need to be aware of for ourselves include feelings of helplessness. Like, are we just feeling burnt out? Are we thinking, like, what's the point anymore? Nobody's listening to me. Nobody's getting help. I don't see any positive outcomes from the work that I'm doing. Confusion, isolation, this long-term exposure to stressful situations can cause physical, mental, and emotional exhaustion and mild to normal stress reactions in many cases. That book uh, that's really popular as well, The Body Keeps Score, how are we experiencing this secondhand trauma, the hearing these stories, you know, taking on other people's traumas as our own? How are we physically feeling that? What do our bodies feel like? What is our heart telling us? What are our actions telling us? And what can we do to get help to stay healthy, to implement, you know, daily activities of self-care. And so getting back to this idea of us versus them, the term coined for that is ethnocentrism. And so it's this idea that our culture or our cultural norms are better than other cultures. We usually don't always realize this is. I never ever felt like I was American until I left America. And I felt like I was slapped in the face of how absolutely American I was. For example, when you're in Haiti and you need to ask for directions, which you do all the time, you would, you know, roll down your window. You say, you know, you're speaking Creole. You say, hello, how are you? You know, make a comment about X, Y, or Z. I'm from the Midwest. So it usually had to do with the weather. And then you can ask, like, how do you get to this place where in the United States, you literally would just walk up to a stranger and say, you know, hey, which way is this restaurant? Or his restaurant this way is not necessarily considered rude. So there's a lot of times where we have these cultural norms that we're not even aware of. And in a lot of ways are kind of bred to think that that is the right way, maybe the more sophisticated way. And that's not always true. And so I think it's important that we be aware of our own cultural beliefs and how we may negatively project that onto others. This ethnocentrism can lead to this kind of comical new term that people are using in the missionary community, uh, which is like the hero syndrome or the savior complex. You are there to, you know, save the world, to be the savior. And this need to save people from their perceived problems doesn't necessarily come from a bad place. You know, it can be what leads us to do the work in the first place. But if we're not accountable, it can quickly become out of control. And we see that in a lot of long-term missionaries or organizations. And it can really lead to keeping people oppressed so that you can save them. So you can see how that could be dangerous. And again, we need to always be checking back in with ourselves to say like, am I just self-sabotaging my life or my organization or whatever in 
order to feel that high, that that volunteer high of wanting to save people from what I believe their problems are. And so if we're not careful with, you know, this ethnocentrism, this hero syndrome, savior complex, what we end up doing is creating the very thing that we're trying to supposedly remove. And the term for this is called learned helplessness. So at the heart of learned helplessness is this sense that we're unable to starve off the sources of our pain, the sense that we have no control over our well-being. And so, again, we see this a lot of times in local work, maybe in inner cities and working with those experiencing homelessness. It's a depressed outlook in which the sufferers lack the will to take action to improve their lives when there's obvious avenues that are present. And so this occurs when an individual continuously faces negative, uncontrollable situation and stops trying to change their circumstances, even when they have the ability to do so. And so if we're not careful and we're not taking the time to learn about individuals and systemic problems, et cetera, we can, like I said, end up creating or perpetuating either consciously or subconsciously the very problems that we say we're there to remove. And so we can go in with this idea that like, oh, you're you're not capable. You're not smart enough. You're not strong enough. You're not qualified. And for whatever reason, we believe to handle your own situation, let me take care of it for you. Let me, you know, provide X, Y, and Z and do it again and again and again until you feel, unfortunately, not empowered, unempowered, oppressed when you really had these skills and abilities in the first place to help handle these challenges that you've been facing. So learned helplessness is fairly new in this conversation of social justice and definitely something that we need to be aware of. So in the book, Subversive Jesus, Craig Greenfield cites a Cambodian proverb that says, a spider must fix its own web. And also cites anthropologist Mary Douglas and sociologist Janet Popendek, who writes, charity wounds because it excuses the recipient from obligations to repay that are deeply embedded in both culture and psyche and are fundamental to social life. This observation reflects the fact that no one feels good about being taken over and over again without offering something in return. Reciprocity is a fundamental organizing principle in society. So that idea of learned helplessness is carried out through all cultures and something that we must be sensitive to. So we talked a lot about things that don't work, but when we think about going about making a social change, we must first identify the problem. And it's important that we establish what we believe the problem is because that impacts the way that we approach it. But it's also important to involve the people who are actually experiencing the problem in the first step. Think about your board of directors, thinking about the people you're interacting with every day that are at maybe your quarterly meetings, are those people also the people that are being impacted by the decisions that you make? And sometimes we might even think that something is a problem for the people who are experiencing it, but it actually is not a problem to them. And we might be practicing ethnocentrism. 
So it's interesting to think about, too, how social problems even come to be. So the truth is, likely the problem existed, but it was not established or identified as a problem in society until we decided it was a problem. So, for example, climate change always happening, right? But it wasn't really named a problem until recently when people said, hey, this this is a problem. It's been going on for a while. And then we were able to start, you know, making changes and movements towards rectifying that problem. So in addition to this, it's especially important to look at all sides of the problem when we're thinking about solution. So one of the theories of this is ecological sociology or the ecological theory. So the ecological systems theory was developed by Yuri Broffenburner. So essentially, he believed that people are impacted by everything in their environment. And he was able to divide that into five different levels. So visualize this as a person inside of a circle. Let's use myself as an example. And then five circles around me, each of them expanding beyond that to the next. So kind of five circles within each other and at the center is the person. So in the middle is the microsystem. So that's really the system that is closest to myself. That's my home, my school, my work, etc. And the relationships within this microsystem are mutual. So that means that both parties are impacted by one another. And really this is the most influential piece of my life. So maybe it's my relationship with me and my husband or me and my parents, my daughter, etc. So they're mutually impacting one another. The next circle is the mesosystem, which is the interconnecting of my microsystem. So for example, this is the relationship between my parents and my teacher when I was growing up or as an adult, maybe between my family and my work environment. The next outer circle is the exosystem. And this system doesn't involve me directly, but it still impacts my life. So for example, if my dad had been in the military, I would have moved a lot and this would have impacted me and my life experience, but I didn't have control over it. The next one is the macro system. So this is my cultural system, the political system, the economic system in which I'm growing up as. I want to make a quick note. A lot of us are working in international work. So it's especially important that we're taking this macro system into consideration when we approach a problem because it is culture, politics, and economy. Again, most of which are influencing that exosystem, that mesosystem, and then eventually that individual, the microsystem. Lastly, we have the chronosystem, and this is really the relationship of time in my development. So what were the historical events most recently? What would it be like for somebody who was born during the coronavirus pandemic? Did the internet exist when I was growing up? What's the political climate? And so the reason that we're talking about this is because I think a lot of times people can step into a situation and maybe say this person is experiencing homelessness in the United States or this person in, you know, Kenya doesn't have access to water and we can kind of target that person and maybe try to fix just the microsystem. But really what we need to be looking at is the five layers, that there's so much happening that are beyond this individual's control, that unless those things are taken into account and also hopefully impacted in some sense, that the longevity and the sustainability that we're trying to achieve with this individual is 
like quite frankly, usually not going to happen. It's usually going to be very time sensitive. We might see an impact on their life for a relatively short period of time, but because of the systems that are impacting them, if we do nothing to address those systems, then that person may just end up exactly where they were in the first place. So again, it's really important that we're looking at the ecological systems theory and thinking about how are people impacted by the political environment, by their community, the micro, meso, macro, like So if we're going in and we're saying like this person, you know, is I remember a situation during my time in Haiti where a lot of the women that were my coworkers and colleagues, that they were experiencing domestic violence. And so we were thinking about like, how can we, you know, get them out of these situations or move them to this place or whatever, whatever. And it was a very short term impact. And when we began talking to other organizations who are working in this, it was about creating this like meso system as well. Like, how can we include the community in this? How can we remove stigmatization of this? How can we educate the community about this and create a safe space so women can feel freedom, can work out? How can we create a bigger system, the macro system? Should we be helping to implement curriculum in the school systems as kids are growing up, etc.? And so it was important that we weren't just saying, okay, this one person is experiencing domestic abuse, which is horrible. Of course, let's just take them and move them to a different house like that again was such a short-term solution to such a long-term problem this brings about that conversation of like what came first the chicken or the egg when we talk about people in the lowest socioeconomic group are about two and a half times more likely than those in the highest group to develop a mental disorder so According to one view, we can say that the stress of living in poverty promotes psychiatric conditions. So, for example, a mother who does not know where she will find food or shelter for her children might develop an anxiety disorder or clinical depression. But another view is that people who are experiencing psychiatric disorders are also not able to work usually to their full capacity and therefore are experiencing lower income. So again, it's like, okay, well, is the stress of living in material poverty creating these extra hardships or are these hardships then creating somebody who is unable to live at their full potential and therefore this is creating material poverty? And that's why it's important that we look at each system and address each system so that the person can experience long-term sustainable fulfillment, again, getting back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. In addition to this, we have the biopsychosocial. So we have the biological need, the psychiatric need, the social need of each individual. And so if people may be experiencing material poverty, then they have these psychological stressors such as anxiety and depression. But then that can also lead to health problems as well, which can then lead to further stress upon the family, which then can lead to generational setbacks. And so it's important to note that chronic stress often offers an explanation to a lot of the problems that people are facing. And stress is a critical area that warrants social attention. 
So I know today we covered a lot of academic verbiage. We covered a lot of scientific research. My ultimate goal of this is really just to help you have words. With words, we can have power, we can have knowledge, we can help to identify our own biases, our own prejudices, and we can do better work. At the end of the day, that's why we're all here. We're all here to give back and we want to do it well and we want to do it right. Have grace with yourself. This is an ever-evolving field. When you're working in any area of social justice, the idea of Being social means working with people. Human beings are always evolving. We're always evolving as individuals and the systems and the environments that we're working in, again, are always evolving. So have grace with yourself, but don't use that as an excuse not to learn. Thank you so much for joining with me today on a topic that I am especially passionate about. I would love to hear any feedback from you. You can email me directly Callie at thepointfoundation.org. I will also be offering some helpful links to books and documentaries that I found helpful over the years as well at thepoint.life in the show notes. Until next time, keep on fighting for justice.